Welcome to the Radical Truth Podcast. I am your host, Glenn Meldrum, and this podcast is brought to you by In His Presence Ministries. Visit us on the web at www.ihpministry.com. We were only able to lay out the context of the opening account of Acts chapter 12 before we closed our last lesson. This story takes up the whole chapter and begins with the martyrdom of James, the son of Zebedee, who was the brother of John, and both were numbered among the first apostles. The account continues with the arrest of Peter, whom Herod Agrippa planned on publicly trying and executing. Verses 1-3 through read, It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This happened around the time when the prophecy Agabus gave was being fulfilled concerning a severe famine that would hit Jerusalem. Verses 4 and 5 give us some more information. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Herod thought Peter was such a valuable criminal that he had him guarded by 16 soldiers. The 24 hours of each day was broken up into four six-hour watches or shifts, which means that four soldiers were always on duty to guard Peter. Herod wanted to try Peter publicly and make a big show of it, for the king had an overinflated ego as the remainder of the story will demonstrate. The king failed to understand that he would give an account for his sins before God and the crimes he committed against the people of Israel. Herod certainly didn't take into account the power of prayer, for the church was praying for Peter's release, and their concern was real since the king had just executed James. Peter's miraculous escape is seen in verses 6-10. through The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and the light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off of Peter's wrists. The angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. The Lord was going to use this event to glorify his name, and I think this is why he waited until the day before the scheduled public trial, so that it would cause the biggest stir possible. This would be a rebuke to Herod, which it doesn't appear that he took any heed to, and it would expose the evil heart of those watching this event in hopes of having Peter executed. Peter wasn't just put in prison with the cell door shut and locked, but two soldiers were chained to him, one on each side, with the two remaining soldiers stationed outside the cell door at different locations. This was a very Roman style of keeping an important prisoner. It doesn't mean that they were Roman soldiers, for as king, the Romans allowed Herod to have a small contingent of soldiers for his own use and protection. Herod had made sure there was no way Peter could escape, or be rescued by some daring disciples, which they wouldn't have attempted anyway. We aren't told the mental condition of Peter while he was in prison, but at least he was sleeping. 
It very well may be that he was at rest in Christ, knowing that the Lord's will would be done no matter how it turned out. Peter might have been thinking while in prison that the Lord's prophecy about him dying for the faith was about to be fulfilled. And if this was the case, it still appears that he was resting in the fact that God was in control. The angel's entrance into the cell and all that he did to wake Peter up, get him dressed and move him out of the cell, didn't wake the guards or excite their attention. It even seems like this was done in a leisurely manner, not in a panic. For the soldiers to sleep while on duty was a major infraction, and we see how this could be possible when doing the late-night shift. Yet it's hard to imagine that all four men fell asleep at the same time and were in such a deep sleep that chains could fall off the wrists of the prisoner and not wake them, or that prison doors could open without causing a great disturbance. The only answer that makes sense given the circumstances is that the guards were supernaturally put to sleep or blinded to all that was happening. However this happened, we aren't told exactly, and there's no need for us to know other than to satisfy our curiosity. The chains fell off of Peter, and all the prison doors and gates were miraculously opened and probably closed by that same power. The apostle walked out of the prison without being molested or even discovered, and the whole time he thought he was seeing a vision. That's understandable since what happened was beyond anything he could imagine. The angel led Peter the length of one street, probably far enough away so that he couldn't be detected by any of the prison guards, and then the angel left him. It was only at this point that Peter knew it wasn't a vision, but that the Lord had rescued him from the hands of Herod Agrippa and the bloodthirsty religious elite. In verse 11 we are told, Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. We see from this that Peter was totally bewildered, almost in a dream kind of state, which caused him to think that it was all a dream or vision. Somehow, the Lord kept the guards from seeing Peter escape, and the Lord could have also caused Peter to be in a dreamlike state so that he was fully compliant with the angel's commands. If Peter had comprehended what was going on from the beginning, he might have been filled with fear of the angel or of waking the guards and not walk out of the prison. As it happened, it doesn't seem like Peter asked the angel a question. He only obeyed the commands given him and then followed the angel. When the fog lifted from his mind, he understood not only that he had been rescued from Herod's clutches, but from the evil the religious elite thought of inflicting upon Peter in the infant church. This is sheer speculation, but it may be that Peter's miraculous escape stopped what might have turned into another outbreak of severe persecution, like what happened after Stephen was martyred. What we find in verses 12 through 16 contains some humorous events. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Once Peter processed what had happened to him and where he was, he made the decision to go to the best place where he could let the saints know what had happened and then afterwards hide himself in safety. Since Peter had just been miraculously delivered by an angel, I would imagine that he was also being divinely led by Holy Spirit to go to the house of Mary. Mary was a sister of Barnabas and the mother of John Mark, who many claim wrote the Gospel of Mark. 
Though there was some persecution against believers in Jerusalem, it doesn't necessarily mean that it was widespread. Yet it was a brave thing for Mary to open her home for a prayer meeting that was attended by many people. It also appears that she was from the wealthier class since she had a home large enough to hold all the saints that had gathered in her house for prayer and she could afford to have some servants. We are told what they were praying about, which was for Peter and his release from prison. They were also probably praying that the trial would go in his favor and that he would be set free or only receive a minor punishment. They probably weren't praying for an angel to miraculously release Peter, especially the night before the trial was to take place. Our responsibility is to pray and to pray to the best of our ability and understanding, and then leave it in God's hands how the prayers are to be answered. We are told that Peter knocked on the outer entrance or gate, but this may have been a door leading down a short passage to the front door of the house. This would be another indication that the house belonged to someone that had a certain amount of wealth. Peter's knocking was at a very late hour, so it's only reasonable that Rhoda, who was a Greek servant, didn't open the door, but asked through the door who was there. Also, given that Peter was in prison, and prior to that James had been martyred, it's understandable that she was very concerned and didn't want to open the door. The point that Rhoda recognized Peter's voice tells us that she knew him personally. Mary's house must have been a frequent stop for Peter and the other apostles. There's also the possibility that Rhoda was a follower of Jesus that heard the apostle preach and teach. She was so excited that Peter was standing at the door that she ran to tell everyone and didn't open the door for him to enter. Kind of silly, isn't it? She cried out, Peter's at the door, but the people didn't believe her. That's sillier still. Isn't this just like us unbelieving Christians? We pray for a miracle and are then shocked when the Lord answers our prayers. We should always be amazed at what the Lord is doing, yet be filled with faith that believes the promises of God. This means that we ought not to be shocked when He answers our prayers. Thankfulness is always the right response, but we need to move beyond being shocked that the Lord answers our prayers and become people powerful in prayer because we believe He will always do what He says He will do. The response of the disciples to Rhoda's declaration wasn't very kind, for they said, You're out of your mind. Those certainly weren't words spoken in love from people that were full of faith, especially since they were having a prayer meeting. Peter kept on knocking, and Rhoda kept on pleading with the people, asserting that the apostle was at the door. The people's response to the servant girl was heartless and degrading. They then claimed that it must be Peter's angel, which means that they were still suffering under some of the Jewish superstitions of that day. Many rabbis taught that the righteous had a guardian angel, so it became a common belief that even goes on into our day. The Bible doesn't teach this, though it does teach that angels are ministering spirits. Though there are many verses that mention angels, we aren't told what they are other than spirit beings that serve the Lord. We are occasionally given a glimpse of their work in Scripture, yet we still don't know much about them. A lot of people have claimed to see angels, some of which may be true and others not. Many cults came into existence from angelic visitations, which were actually encounters with demons who are fallen angels. Peter stated in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. And he said this in relation to false prophets and teachers that were trying to worm their way into the church. The Lord in His infinite wisdom kept from mankind the ability to interact with angels because He knows how easy it is for us to stray from the truth and would have a tendency to worship them, as has happened many, many times. We see this from the book of Revelation with John the Apostle. 
Because angels are spirit beings, we can't see them except when the Lord allows them to manifest themselves in a way that we can comprehend. We are told in Psalms 91.11, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. And this protection is given to those who make the Most High their dwelling, and this is stated in verse 9. But Scripture doesn't say we are assigned a guardian angel, as some suppose. And this verse in Acts chapter 12 that we are looking at doesn't support the idea either. It's only showing the foolishness of the superstition. As I said before, it's 100% superstition to believe that when humans die, they become angels. Angels and humans are totally different creatures, and the one never becomes the other. Returning to Peter, we find that he is still knocking at the door, wanting to get into the house before prying eyes happen to see him. Yet he is probably laughing at the crazy response of the servant girl. Rhoda must have been acting very different and was emotionally urging the disciples in the home that Peter was actually knocking at the door. They finally opened the door, and to their utter amazement, they found Peter standing there in flesh and blood, and not some angel or spirit. Of course, at that point, they let him into the house, since we see from verse 17 that Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then left for another place. Peter told the disciples in Mary's house the fantastic story of his miraculous deliverance from prison, and he must have had the people amazed at what he said. He then told them to tell James and the brothers about his deliverance. Peter singled James out, who was the brother of our Lord, and had become the head of the church in Jerusalem. James, the brother of John, who were both apostles, had just been martyred by Herod Agrippa. The fact that Peter was giving deference to James is an expression of the lesser giving honor to the greater as to position within the church. We could say that James was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and Peter was one of its leaders under James. Peter was right to inform James of his release, just as it would be for someone to tell his pastor about a momentous event in his life. Peter was never head of the church, not in Jerusalem, Rome, or anywhere. He was an apostle, and that high calling didn't include pastoring a church or overseeing the church at large. He was a herald of the gospel as an eyewitness of our Lord's life, resurrection, and ascension. He was entrusted with a wealth of knowledge to impart to the church along with the other remaining apostles. Being numbered among the original apostles was a great and noble calling, but it wasn't greater than any other calling. Peter was never a pope. The Bible doesn't teach that there should be such a position. The creation of a pope never came out of the heart and will of God, but was the creation of men who wanted to build an earthly religious kingdom. After telling the disciples the phenomenal story of his miraculous escape from prison, Peter, out of love for the disciples at Mary's house, left for a safer place where he wouldn't bring danger to the other saints. Peter knew that Herod Agrippa would be raging mad when he learned what happened and would want to have some kind of retribution for his humiliation. Herod and the guards wouldn't understand the miracle of Peter's escape, nor would they believe it if the story was told them. In verses 18 and 19, we are given a look at Peter's prison breakout. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what happened to Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there for a while. 
Soon as it was learned that Peter had escaped the prison, the guards began searching for him, and they must have made a thorough search. In one sense, you can feel sorry for the guards, since they were only doing their job in guarding Peter. It seems that the angel must have put the guards into some kind of physical stupor, as if they were in a deep sleep, since they didn't find that Peter was missing until morning. There are four watches every 24 hours, with each watch being six hours, and I've already mentioned this. This would indicate that Peter escaped somewhere around midnight during the final watch of the night. If Peter escaped at the beginning of the fourth watch, he had roughly five or six hours to get far enough away to not be found. It was probably when the next watch was due that the guards were found to be in this stupor and that Peter had vanished. Only then did the enormity of the problem begin to appear. After the guards weren't able to find Peter, the news had to be given to Herod for that was the very day he planned to try and execute Peter. Peter's escape was a great embarrassment to the king. Herod then ordered another search, and this was probably far more thorough than what the soldiers even did. When Peter couldn't be found, Herod personally examined the guards, and when it was impossible for them to explain how Peter escaped, the king was furious. In that day, if a prisoner escaped, the guards were held responsible, a life for life, so they were executed. The severity of the penalty kept soldiers mindful of their duty so that they wouldn't fall asleep or neglect their responsibilities. The soldiers really hadn't neglected their duty, yet the evidence of a miracle was clear, but the conclusion was something Herod refused to accept. All the prison doors and gates were locked, none of the keys were missing, all the soldiers were in their places, and were being watchful, yet the prisoner escaped. With all this evidence, Herod committed a great injustice by having the guards executed, since everything pointed to a divine intervention. For those who are God-haters, the miraculous isn't an option, even when all the facts give clear evidence that this is the case. Herod must have been so shaken from this turn of events and the humiliation he received that he left Judea to visit Caesarea. Judgment was ready to fall upon the wicked king, and the scales of justice was leaning heavily against him. Verse 20 sets the stage for the execution of divine judgment upon Herod. Herod had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended upon the king's country for their food supply. There isn't any historical evidence as to the reason for the animosity between Herod and the people of Tyre and Sidon. The Jewish historian Josephus mentioned this trip, but didn't state the reason for it or why there was a quarrel in the first place. Tyre and Sidon needed to have good relations with Herod and the people of Israel since their primary food supply came from Israel. If Herod was vindictive and shut down the trade to Tyre and Sidon, it would also hurt the farmers and merchants in Israel, but a self-absorbed king doesn't care about that unless it personally affects him. Herod's personal servant became the go-between who arranged the meeting so that peace could be secured and trade continue. Verses 21 through 23 inform us that on the appointed day Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. The meaning of verse 21 is affected by what translation you read. 
1984 NIV reads, on the appointed day, while the King James Version states, and upon a set day. The one translation makes it appear that there was a particular day for Herod to meet with the emissaries of Tyre and Sidon, while the other makes it sound like it was a special day. Josephus wrote that this took place on the second day of the games Herod had started in honor of Emperor Claudius. If this is the case, then what the guests shouted out was a declaration raising Herod to the status near to that of emperor worship that was integral to Rome. Herod had come out to the people in all the pomp that his arrogant self could produce, wearing royal robes that were costly to the extreme and extraordinary in their appearance. The representatives of Tyre and Sidon were out to secure the needed commerce, so they were quick to feed the ego of a proud king, which is easy to do when people know how to flatter nobility. After the king delivered a speech, which was probably about restoring relations between Israel and Tyre and Sidon, the emissaries shouted, This is the voice of a god, not a man. Being that the people were probably adherents to the Roman religion, where they worshipped a pantheon of gods and elevated Caesar to the place of a deity, it could be that they thought Herod was some kind of lesser deity. More than likely, this was raw politics, and they were being typical politicians that know how to flatter those they want to manipulate. Besides, after drinking much wine, they could have enthusiastically made such a ridiculous pronouncement. Their praise hit Herod at the point of his weakness, and he puffed out his chest in arrogance while seated on his throne in his splendid royal robes. He had come to believe that he was someone special above the level of smaller, lesser kings and deserved such praise from the people. Herod wasn't a servant of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he had proven himself to be an enemy of Jesus by killing James and imprisoning Peter. If all had gone according to plan, he probably would have expanded his persecution of the church. He didn't live to glorify God, not with his life and not when these people falsely called him a god. We are told that judgment immediately fell upon the arrogant ruler, and angels stripped him of all his pride and temporal splendor in one moment. It appears that Herod fell sick while seated on the throne and was taken to his bedchambers where he died five days later. His judgment was immediate and it lasted into eternity. There's much speculation over what this ailment was, and it's possible that it was a known malady that suddenly gripped him. Yet far too often we are quick to give natural meaning to supernatural acts, and this is often due to the influence of rationalism and relativism that robs a church of her faith. Herod the Great, the grandfather of Herod Agrippa, died of a similar judgment. Josephus said that Herod Agrippa's death came five days later during a time of excruciating pain. We ought not to rejoice over the death of the wicked, because their end is horrible and eternal. Yet we see that the justice of God is real, and every person must give an account before him who judges the living and the dead. It was an angel that opened the prison doors to set Peter free, and it was an angel who inflicted King Herod with the ailment that took his life. In total contrast to the events that happened to Herod Agrippa, we read in verse 24, But the word of God continued to increase and spread. Herod's arrogant acts caught up to him, and he was disgracefully swept from the stage of human history. At the same time, those he intended to destroy grew prolifically. Both experienced the hand of God. One experienced the horror of divine judgment, the other the joy of the Heavenly Father's love and protection. 
Those who raise their hands against God's saints will face his upraised hand of vengeance. It may come quickly like it did with Herod, or it may be the slow and steady decline of a nation or empire. People can't fight against God and win, and those who belong to Jesus can't lose even if they die in a disgusting prison cell. James was taken from the earth in a moment with a slice of a sword. His head was removed from his shoulders. But he died absolutely victorious, and hell was the absolute loser. We see from this chapter, though there is suffering in this life for those who are genuine followers of Jesus, in the end, if we remain faithful, we win. We are absolute victors because Jesus is Christ the victor. It seems from verse 25 that Barnabas and Paul were in Jerusalem while the famine was taking place and the miraculous escape of Peter from prison. The verse reads, When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. They were returning to Antioch to continue growing the church in that Gentile city that had a large Jewish population. When they left Jerusalem, John Mark went with them. Barnabas was his uncle because Mary was his sister. John was his Jewish name, while Mark was his Roman name. We don't know for sure why he went by Mark instead of John, but it may be that he was a citizen of Rome and used that name for the same reason Saul used his Roman name, which is Paul. As I just stated, Mark's mother was Mary, and since the home is referred to as hers, Mark's father was probably dead. The evidence points to the dynamic that the family was wealthy, and we see this from their having a large home with a Greek servant girl. Mark's family probably gained their wealth in the Gentile world and then returned to Israel, and this was a common practice. We will study why Mark left Paul and Barnabas when we get to that point in our study of Acts. It appears that Peter led Mark to Christ, for we find in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13 that Peter refers to him as a spiritual son in the faith. According to tradition, Mark was at various times the traveling companion of Peter, and this is why the gospel that was written by Mark is said to be actually Peter's account. None of the gospels clearly declare who the author is. John comes close by referring to the author as a disciple whom Jesus loved. From the beginning of Luke and then the book of Acts, we can tell that both books were written by the same person, which was Luke. Both Matthew and Mark don't have any internal evidence that reveals who their authors were. The tradition that John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark has strong external evidence. Since we aren't studying the Gospel of Mark, I'm not going to go deeper into determining who wrote that Gospel. Traditions vary as to what Mark did before leaving with Barnabas and Paul. Some claim that he was a synagogue ruler, and his going with Barnabas and Paul was to help bring some organization to the new church plants. Others have said he was a priest. We can assume that he was at the very least a Levite because Barnabas was a Levite. There's no internal evidence to clarify what he did, and the external evidence is not strong enough to make a conclusion. Though Paul rejected Mark as a missionary companion because he deserted him in the first missionary journey, in time Mark became a faithful brother that Paul asked to help him labor for the Savior. This is a good example of how God can develop us into becoming faithful laborers in the kingdom of heaven. The Lord can take the raw material that we are when we first come to Christ and mold us to become men and women of God if we will only let Him discipline and shape us for His glory. Thank you for listening to The Radical Truth with your host, Glenn Meldrum. We at In His Presence Ministries pray that this weekly podcast will be a blessing to you. Please tell others about it and subscribe yourself to this free podcast. 
Don't forget to visit our website at www.ihpministry.com. See you again next time, and may God richly bless you as you seek Him in spirit and in truth. Come drink your fill Let healing waters Bear away